Hello, and welcome to Stuff Mom I Forgot to Tell You. I'm Monica Francois Marcel, a Gen X founder, entrepreneur, and baseball mom based in Chicago. And I believe that if we're very lucky and work very hard, life will be long and it will be messy. So to help us with the mess and provide tips for longevity and joy in what lies ahead, each episode, I'm borrowing either the mother of a friend or a trusted mentor that I greatly admire. This is a diverse group of women who've been there and done that, and you are going to love their stories. My own mom isn't here anymore, so the stuff these women share is precious to me, and their cross-generational pearls of wisdom are just what we all need. I'm so excited for you to join us, so let's jump in. Today's uh, conversation is with Deb Daggett, who I've had the great pleasure of knowing. Deb, I'm going to guess we probably go back at least 10 years at this point. Does that sound about right to you? That sounds about right. Yeah. So, Deb, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Deb is interestingly, we'll get to this in a minute, but Deb is also going through a transition of her own at the moment. So we can't wait to kind of unpack her decision-making on some of that and some of her story. But our goal, Deb, as you know, is to really just, you know, tell your story and get some get some insights from you that I know I personally will benefit from and I know that others will as well. We don't often, I think, tell enough of our stories about how we made decisions at certain pivotal points, maybe some things that we would do differently or maybe things that we did that absolutely made the difference. And I know that for myself, as I look at, you know, the next decades ahead of me, I am trying to be intentional about some of the choices I make and ways that I can set myself up. And so far in life, I've been really lucky to benefit from whether it be mentors or just people that I have from a distance kind of studied and admired. And you have fortunately to me been kind of one of both of those, whether you know it or not. And so I'm going to just lean on that a little bit more. So Deb, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And I know you don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, but that's part of the fun um, for me in terms of where we go. The first question is one I want to take you way back, right? I want you to think about when you were young and think about when you were little and think a little bit about how your story began and just tell us anything that you would, you know, from those early years. And, And most importantly for me, I would love you to share a little bit about what you thought your life might be like when you were little, right? And what any of the people that you looked up to, whether it be grandparents, parents, you know, aunts, uncles, anybody might have been wishing for you or or putting on you as kind of expectations or ideas. Can you take us back? Sure. Well, I was born on the Presidio in San Francisco at Letterman Army Hospital. My father was in the service. And At the time I was born, the doctor um, was the rare breed who knew what to make of the fact that I was born with two broken bones, uh, both upper legs, and that I had a rare brittle bones condition. And uh, he, you know, told my parents that I might never walk or be able to go to school, but try to treat me like they would any other kid, you know, coming home on a pillow with cats on both legs. I would say in those early years, what I was acutely aware of is, one, I was the 
uh, first child from my parents as well as my grandmother. And while I didn't okay. know my paternal grandparents or my paternal grandfather, my grandmother played a pivotal role in my life. She came from South Dakota during uh, the dust storms where farms got blown away to Oregon. Uh, she didn't get a chance to go to college. She was self-taught in many different skills from typing to sewing, and she was a legal secretary at a time where it was more like being a paralegal. She would uh, okay. type up documents without any input from the lawyer she worked for on a manual typewriter with five or six carbon copies that were each a different pastel color and really had to use the correct paint or whatever they called it. Anyway, I spent probably most family time with her. And when I wasn't with her, I uh, was in various hospitals. And instead of being sick, um, don't think like St. Jude's or something like that, I really um, was just stuck there for really long periods of time waiting for bones to heal because I continued to have these fractures. What was interesting about that that really shaped my life is that I became kind of a added staff to the nurses and doctors. (laughs) So other kids were cycling through there really quick for, you know, Uh much shorter stays, much less frequent. Many, it was their first time. And so from a young age, the staff learned that if they put a child that was very upset and scared next to me, then I would teach them the ropes and play games with them. And I know this sounds like a weird comparison, but it was kind of like being a trustee in a prison. Um, I got lots of extra special treatment and um, it's strange what you adapt to, but I went from thinking it would be really awful to have a broken bone to once the pain subsided, which was relatively quick once they set the bone, I kind of was proud of my role in the hospital and I would get my tutoring there um, and just felt, I guess, a sense of purpose. And the kids, all girls, I was on a girls ward, were from all over the world, all different class and social backgrounds. And so I guess those early years paved the way to be um, a leader, to learn how to influence, to be a diversity person, because I was with people from all different backgrounds. And I guess to adapt to change and uh, difficult circumstances, which I learned to think of as what was normal for me and something I could be good at. You know, it's so interesting. You're making me think of so many things, Deb, but... um. You know, sometimes people will, like, there's a couple things that I'm pretty good at, right? And one of them is that um, I'm not sure how good I am at it, but I'm certainly comfortable speaking, right, with a lot of different people of different backgrounds. And um, not everyone is, and I understand. I remember hearing in school that that is some people's greatest fear, yeah. right, is, like, giving a speech or being, and I was always like, really? You know, I love it. And when I, hearing you talk, it reminds me that in my own family, my mother was very outgoing and she, you know, talked a lot, I should say. And uh, they put us in situations. My dad was a politician when I was a kid. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, my mom was her campaign manager, was his campaign manager a number of times. And she also worked as a congressional aide and did lots of things. But you're reminding me that recently some of my friends have said to me stuff like, 
you know, was your family always like that? <laughs> I mean, were you all always talking? And, um, and I was like, yeah, I mean, weren't you? And they were like, no. And then she, they were talking about how as a kid, apparently, I would organize things in elementary school and I would be the one um, volunteering, whether they wanted me to volunteer or not, to kind of, you know, run, I don't know, a day out volunteer program or something. And as you're talking, I'm realizing how early those lessons were, right, through um, just experiences that, as I look back now, were so formative. But at the time, I just took for granted because it was just what I knew, right? And it sounds like those early years, this is fascinating, Deb, going back to part of the choices that you made and the skills that you had, they just manifested so early for you. That's fascinating. Yeah, my dad was out of the picture when I was about seven, they divorced. And my mother was the opposite of your mom. Um, very okay. shy, uh, very anxious, um, good at you know helping me with my needs when I was home. But I also had a younger brother, so she couldn't visit very often. My grandmother was more like you described. Um, that's why I brought okay. her up. She right very outgoing, a lot of different skill sets from uh, sewing to her socialization skills, her self-advocacy skills. And wow. uh, she used to... Um, work near the hospital I was at. I was at Stanford Children's Hospital and her um, office was within a couple blocks. And every day she would come over at lunchtime and gather all the kids in a circle and beds and wheelchairs. And she always had those big packs of um, a gum called fruit stripe gum that you can get in some I remember. style candy I remember. stores. And if yeah. you um, ate a goodly amount of your lunch and drank all your milk, you know, there was all these beliefs about what nutrition would do to help people get well. And uh -huh. um, eating lots of milk and protein was considered, you know, important. So she would cajole all the kids with me into, <laughs> you know, eating the most important parts of the lunchtime meal. And in exchange, you would get a piece of fruit striped gum. And we played Candyland. Um, but when I wasn't in the hospital, I was often babysat where she worked. And okay. worked for a, a very well-known attorneys. There was one named Melvin Belli, who back in the day was um, so well-known, he even got to play the part of a friendly angel on a Star Trek episode. Because Oh my goodness. One of these pop culture kind of guys. Um, <laughs> and uh, she worked for the attorneys for General Motors for a while. Um, okay. And they okay. all became my adopted grandpas. That was all men back then. And um, one of the things I remember about her that cracked me up is I'm four, about four feet tall. She wasn't very tall either, right around five feet. But um, she would, you know, wear those pantyhose with the seam up the back and high heels. Yes. And yep. what we would, in our generation, consider sexual harassment, she considered complimentary. So, you know, she had a, a drawing of herself, a caricature that was her head on a little body. And it said, Helen, she's strictly illegal. And she had that on her living room wall. And she considered, you know, when she took them coffee and did other things that are, were secretarial at the time, she considered that to be um, a, a fun time to flirt and like the old Mad Men episode. 
kind of thing. And she was very happy about about the role that she played. So that really helped me to strike a balance between Uh how I viewed things like stereotypes and generalizations and that it's really the platinum role. It depends on how you receive it. And while that would have been highly inappropriate for some women, uh, for her, it was welcome attention and something she looked forward to every day that informed her, um, her flair, her style. (laughs) And um, it was fun to watch a little woman both be in command of Right, uh, all these men who depended right. on her all day long, and right. at the same time willing to be um, teased. So I, I think, and I could play a lawyer on TV because I I would spend so much time around lawyers, which also served me well as a diversity professional. Because as you know, you also have to be familiar with all kinds of legislation and be able to write like a lawyer on occasion. And, you know, a couple of the things that you put in there that are powerful for me. One is, um, as I've been doing these conversations, what I'm discovering is that for a lot of uh, the women that I'm speaking to, it's wonderful to see where the different, you know, maternal or just, you know, women in their life have come from, right? In some cases, it's been um, the nanny, right? That was really the surrogate mom. That really was the mother that was there for them their entire life. Or, you know, their mom was not able to be there. So it was a grandmother or someone. And um, it's humbling and, re- and a great reminder for me about the fact that family takes all sorts of forms and uh, what the lessons are that we take away are really the most important thing out of that. And then the other thing that I was thinking about, as you described your grandmother's role in this hospital, right, in terms of organizing these kids and helping, cajoling them, as you said, with, with, with packs of gum, right, to be stronger and to find ways to, you know, to bring them together and to organize them and to give them a sense of community, to have seen that and been a part of that and to have that be your own grandmother, you know, your grandma was the one doing that, right? That must have been pretty powerful imprint on your, on your brain and on your psyche in those early years to not only know what advocacy looks like, what allyship looks like, right? But also to have it be, you know, your, sounds like she was gorgeous and just lovely on the inside and out. Grandma be the one playing that role. Really interesting. It was, uh, I miss her a lot. And I think of her often because she's both, you know, the traditional nurturing grandma that would bake things and recipes and all that stuff that you, you want a grandmother to be, to pass things down. She's really fun, very body at times, very playful. Uh, we played crazy eights. We went to the drive-in, um, which was a lot of fun. I, I remember we, I had a half brother who was learning English and still had a pretty heavy accent. His family was from Mexico, um, my stepmother's son. And we went to see um, the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the drive-in. And my grandmother for years and years and years would cackle every time she remembered it because Hector would say it, shitty, shitty bang bang. (laughs) Something (laughs) like that could get my grandmother. And she had one of those laughs where she would get going um, and then like do the snort, you know, and and then she couldn't stop, you know, and it was so contagious. And I remember, you know, that, that sense of just playfulness and, Yep. Joy yep. and um, finding small things that just make make you happy every time you think about them. 
Um, and right. She wasn't making fun of this little boy or anything. She not. She just appreciated the moment. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So then let's fast forward a little bit. Um, I'd like you to talk. I always ask this question, and I'm, I'm fascinated to know what your answer is going to be, given all the things that you've accomplished. Um, I'd like to know when you look on your life so far, you've got a lot of years ahead of you, right? But what are some of the things, out of all the things you've done, Deb, what are some of the things that, you know, you're pr- that you're most proud of? Well, I, um, when I first started working after I got my master's degree in clinical psychology at a semiconductor company, it was an entry level minimum wage back office HR job in the recruiting department. Okay. And I couldn't get them to take me seriously. They wouldn't even interview me for a promotional opportunity. And it was both a general problem for women back then. Uh, we often called ourselves the pink collar brigade, people that were stuck in admin roles, no matter how far we went in college. But um, when COBRA passed, which allowed me to keep my medical benefits, which, as you might imagine, was a a priority, I um, took the bold step of uh, leaving there and starting a nonprofit to help people with disabilities get jobs. And using a combination of my knowledge of the disability community that I did volunteer work for, my clinical psychology degree, and having observed and done a lot of the work associated with the recruitment department. Mm -hmm. And it became one of the best known um, agencies of that kind in the country. In fact, we um, were featured in the Smithsonian. And the reason why was it used to be very common that all the different agencies that did something like that, whether they were government or nonprofit um, or for-profit, there are a few, um, would compete with each other. They wouldn't share either the jobs or the candidates. So this model was a coalition where we shared everything. And the way I was funded, unlike all the other about a dozen agencies that serve people with a broad range of disabilities, is I threatened uh, to sue the state of California if the Employment Development Department, where everybody that employed anybody had to submit all their jobs, started serving people with disabilities. At the time, if you had a disability and you went into an employment office, they turned you Uh away and you had to go to a vocational rehabilitation counselor, which may know a lot about disability, but knew nothing about the labor market. So it was hopeless. So we actually worked with Vogue Rehab. We worked with nonprofits and we went from placing 40 people a year to 400 within a year. Um, That caused me to get tapped to help with the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act lobbying um, in Washington, D.C., at the request of my congressman, Norm Mineta, who later became the Secretary of Transportation and various other roles. And then he invited me to the signing in 1990 on the South Lawn of the White House. And there were close to 3,000 people out there on that steamy day. And when uh, George Bush Sr. came down off the platform. The Secret Service was trying to hustle him back into the White House because nobody had been checked. You know, they had thrown this together at the last minute. There was nobody going through magnetometers or whatever you call them. Um, they hadn't even checked our backgrounds, right? Um, so uh, he, for some reason, the president, made a beeline for me 
And I was the only person whose hand he shook before he went into the White House. Now, time, I thought, um, because my role compared to everyone else there was very minor. Some of them had written the law and had been lobbying for a decade. Um, So at the time, I saw it as some kind of divine intervention that I was supposed to go back into the corporate world and slay those disability exclusion, you know, dragons that were getting in the way of people uh, getting employed. You know, and but I was also smart enough to know that if he asked the Secret Service to do just one handshake before he left, of course, he'd pick the short statured woman with a cane, you know, uh, wearing a dress in the front row. I mean, I couldn't have looked like very scary. They could take me, right? So, <laughs> you know, but still, there were a lot of disabled people there that probably were not scary. So I, I, I factored that in as well. But I did end yeah. up becoming one of the first <laughs> chief diversity officers in the country because a company called Sun Microsystems hired me only as a contractor. I wasn't supposed to do anything uh, except be there for three months to help them comply with the ADA because there'd been all this fear mongering about how it was going to be bad for business. Right. Well, diversity was just getting started and they had like, you know, a, a, a huge budget and they were spending it all on putting ads in magazines good faith ads. And I, um, despite being a contractor, diverted all those funds into scholarships for high school students from marginalized communities and dared on the public media with these newly formed employee resource groups that all other companies do the same thing. Um, And it was, instead of getting fired, the CEO, who was my age at the time, 32, liked my chutzpah, he used more colorful language, um, and um, said, um, hey, you're hired and you can do this stuff they're calling diversity. And because I was the only person doing it with a disability, the people who were far older than me from mostly African-American backgrounds Um, invited me to be part of the formation of diversity and inclusion as a separate way of thinking about affirmative action in EEO. So it was um, quite the experience to be part of that transformation and to go from barely able to pay my bills at, you know, $5 an hour wages to being two levels below the CEO and being considered an executive. (laughs) <laughs> was your grandmother I'm sorry to interrupt you was your grandmother around at yes. this point and it was funny because she grew up in a different time and certainly was not knowledgeable at all about anything diversity related and grew up in a fairly mm-hmm. racist community and instead of it horrifying her she sought to learn and I remember after shortly after I took that role she'd come to see me on an airplane and she was so proud because she wanted me to know that a very nice African-American gentleman sat next to her on the plane and they had a wonderful time getting to know each other and it was because of my job that she you know decided that you know, she wanted to get to know people who came from different racial backgrounds. 
Um, so, you know, I'm happy that at the end of her life, she realized, you know, she still had opportunities to learn and grow and be a part of different communities. So that was really cool. And I'm, um, I'm wondering, like, you know, d- did you then have the insight that I'm pulling through listening to you talk here in this whole story about those early attorneys that she introduced you to and how, again, I think that probably imprinted your brain in terms of some of the decisions you made and some of the paths and um, by giving you access and bringing you to the office when you were little and all those things, um, I see, you know, a connection point. I don't know if you see it. I definitely do. In fact, when I left Silicon Valley and went to work for Merck, the person who hired me at the time was the general counsel, Ken Frazier. Wow. He was, he was a G. Wow. I didn't realize He and I hit it off instantaneously. Wow. I'd had a lot of weird experiences interviewing for a couple of years before that with multiple firms that were not, not exactly pleasant, uh, very open discrimination. And when he sat down with me after I'd had about six interviews uh, with other people, very, you know, tall, elegant man, he sat down, he leaned forward, so he was pretty close, and his first sentence to me is, you must have had one hell of a day, because <laughs> he knew a little woman was walking around, with, and people were picking right. their jaws up off the floor, um, right. and that I was interviewing for their first ever diversity job, but he and I made a pact that if I accepted the role, which I knew was going to be my Mount Everest, he would have my back and help me. And he did. He was always there for me. So I'd like to, to switch a little bit to, um, you know, what are some of the things that you managed along the way? Um, and I do this, you know, I'm mindful as I do this with you, given <laughs> your incredible professional accomplishments. I'm really not trying to diminish those at all, Deb. What I'm trying to unpack are some of the human parts of you that you also managed along the way, right? Um, And by that, I really just mean things like, you know, family or kind of pivot points or decisions. You know, if if I think about myself and my own trajectory, I know that there were a couple times, you know, as a Peace Corps volunteer. And when I got back, by the way, Norm Mineta was an old boss of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, I used to work at, a, a, I worked at the Department of Transportation uh, when I went off to go be a Peace Corps volunteer, you know, in the early 90s. And so, um, and, and Norm and my dad uh, professionally were great colleagues because my, my dad ran an association that, anyway, so I, I, I don't know him. I won't pretend like I know Norm well, but I certainly, you know, I'm familiar with him and had access to him on occasion. So that's really funny to me. But I know that, uh, you know, going off and, and doing Peace Corps was great. And when I got back, I had access to, um, you know, some jobs in, the, in that sector, in that field that I was really lucky early to have a lot of career success. And I, something in me said, I'm ready to do something else, you know, and I discovered this field of uh, cross-cultural work, having been in Peace Corps and that changed me. And I realized that I was better at these people systems and understanding the way culture worked, having been an engineer than some others were. And it also just launched a passion for me. And I didn't know that I was meant to be an entrepreneur, but it turned out that I was. And I think, again, strangely, being a Peace Corps volunteer is a little bit, at least in my case, it was a little bit like being an entrepreneur because every day I had to kind of make up my job and figure out what I was going to do. And I had all sorts of resources and theory available to me, but I had to figure out how to utilize them and kind of create my own uh, role every day. That's not true for everyone, but that was true in the former Soviet Union for me in the early 90s. 
And so when I got back, I turned away from what I had been doing and I started something new. And then for the last 20 years, as you know, 22 years, almost 24 years, um, I've been doing some amazing work, you know, in DE&I. And now I'm doing something different again, um, trying to figure out exactly how to kind of align, as you said, you know, my purpose, which seems to change, I think, at different points in my life. And that's okay. You know, as I go through different phases, you know, now I'm a mom and one of my purposes is to figure out how to be even more present for my kid who wasn't when I was traveling the world, uh, doing a lot of other work and things. So it's a long way of me getting to, I'm curious, what were some of the things along the way that maybe you haven't shared or, you know, share as much as you're comfortable that you were managing in terms of certain decisions you made? And is there anything that you would do again or anything really pivotal that when you look back on it, you're like, wow, that was a, a big decision or that was a lot to manage? There were a lot of things that like that. I would say a big one was um, choosing to adopt three children with disabilities from different parts of Russia um, within a, uh, it was a, about a two and a half year time frame. Wow. It's it, sometimes you do things because you don't know what you don't know. If mm-hmm. I had known how high risk that whole thing what would be, I, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I love my kids. They're all wonderful adults now, but I look back and my husband and I were really fortunate to have survived that experience. <laughs> I mean, we had yeah. like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in cash strapped to us. We were carrying all kinds of required gifts for everyone we came into contact with. Our children did not um, speak English and we didn't speak Russian. The medical paperwork we had was minimal and erroneous. (laughs) So I'm glad we did it, but I marvel that we did it. Um, The way we were treated, we were yelled at, spit on, um, threatened, uh, we're often, you know, left to our own devices to figure out how to navigate. I've been asked to come to Russia a few times since then to speak, not very recently. Um, and I would never, ever, ever consider going back there. It was such a terrifying experience. So I, I would say that was a really big one. That was both something I'm glad I did, but quite frankly, it was foolhardy. You know, if I'd had broken bone over there, if we could have been beat up and had our money stolen, something bad could have happened to the kids since we were having so much trouble communicating. So that was a big one. I I would also say the decision to move from California to New Jersey and take on the job at Merck, the first two years were brutal. I I couldn't Mm. do anything right. I came from a culture where anything goes very relaxed, very laid back, and being a person with a disability was not a big deal, to a, um, a culture that was very hierarchical, very siloed in multiple ways by business unit, geography. It was learning how to navigate that. I, I would have been easier to go to Tokyo because at least I would have expected everything to be different. Uh, Interesting. Right. uh, And I, you know, 
I'm not sure how I managed to navigate that, quite frankly, because it seemed like everything I did for the first 12 to 18 months was a mistake. <laughs> and I heard about it. And it was such a visible role. So these were big blunders that everyone could see that, you know, if what if we had the time and I were to explain what people thought was terrible, you would say, why was that so bad? Well, it's because I was in the pharmaceutical industry in one of the most conservative companies in the country, very compliance-oriented industry, who'd never done diversity mm -hmm. before and was really resistant to anything that that change required. So I, I would say those are the main things. I mean, I could fill up many sheets of notebook paper with all. Oh, I'm sure you could. <laughs> so what are, so again, pearls of wisdom is what we're on the hunt for, right? So I'm curious, you know, the, those three, three kids that you mentioned, right? Are there any of those kinds of things that you find yourself saying, you know, to your parents a lot, excuse me, to your kids a lot? Do you think that they find mom annoying in this way or do they find mom like very, oh, wow, you're right, mom. I didn't see that coming. I'm curious, like anything like that. Well, it's different at different ages, as you know. Right. Uh, they're right. all um, in their you know, 27 to 29 now. They're very close in age. Now I think they find it more helpful and they do ask for advice. For a long time, they just found it annoying. My husband and I had a re role reversal my husband would say wait till your mother comes home and that would be the most terrifying thing <laughs> if they did something wrong and you know it wasn't because there was any corporal punishment in our house it was that to them the worst possible scenario would be to sit and have to have a quiet conversation with me about examining their choices um, and what they'll do differently going forward and I would still say that they see me in the role of, you know, having some wisdom to offer, but also they're much more embarrassed to tell me something that they know was a stupid idea than they are my husband. You know, they're, they're, they're more willing mm -hmm. to share the pitfalls in life when they should have known better with him. Not because I am all that judgy, but I think they would, say, if you ask them, I wasn't listening to your voice in my head. <laughs> so I know that you recently moved. Um, can we say it out loud that you recently moved to Florida? And uh, I saw on Facebook, you know, you're kind of announcing um, the, the transition down there. So what are you most looking forward to? And I'm curious, you know, how are you spent? I know you're probably spending your days Right now, I'm guessing moving and getting everything in order. Maybe not. Maybe your electricity's on and your internet. Well, obviously your internet is. But what are some of the things you're looking forward to um, doing in your daily routine there in Florida? Well, one of the happy surprises after living in a very rural, isolated community for 21 years in New Jersey, which was beautiful, but isolated, is that um, I, you can go back to dorm life. So, uh -huh. yeah, so when I was in college, um, one of the ways I paid for the cost of my college education is I was a resident assistant in the dorms. And, okay. Um, I love dorm life, you know, everybody knowing each other and um, knowing what was going on three doors down and meeting, you know, whether it's by the mailbox or the laundry or on campus. Well, this uh, area is very much like that. And people are very social. And um, I'm 
a bit of a social introvert. I'm kind of right on the introvert extrovert scale and I need help because I, if left to my own devices, I would not be the kind of person to chat it up with people who, you know, <laughs> um, I would have to go out of my way to find, um, it, they have to right. say hi first and okay. show some interest and I need to feel safe with them. I need to feel like, okay. um, that I, I'm not a curiosity, I'm a potential friend and neighbor. And so I love the fact that in this 66 unit building, it's like a gigantic dorm. Uh, <laughs> and I already know more people after a short time here than after 21 years in our prior home. Like wow. anything I want to eat from great restaurants, I can Amazing. do Instacart. Um, see, I couldn't order Very anything before. Uh, and I okay. feel safer. Oh, and everything's accessible because there's um, a majority older population. So there's lots of people with mobility-related disabilities like me. So I can take my scooter, my motorized scooter, and roll all the way from my apartment to the park next door and the beach, um, anywhere in this community. It's all ramped and all that kind of stuff so I just feel like while it's a variety of people and ages there's enough of us uh, that I'm no longer uh, the odd person out and positive deviance abounds in terms of dealing with um, the vagaries of the aging process <laughs> And, you know, one of the reasons that um, that building is accessible is because there's this woman that I know, her name's Deb Daggett. And back in 1990, uh, she and a bunch of her friends and colleagues and, uh, you know, were, were pushing the envelope at the time to make a world where now Deb Daggett in her early retirement years is able to live in a place where she has that kind of access. And so do all of her colleagues. So look at that circle, right? I know you weren't doing it just for yourself, but I, it's, it's, I can't help but make that connection back, right? To um, part of how it happened, right? So we're humble, but we have got to, we got to recognize, you know, the things that we, that we're doing for ourselves. Okay. So final question, well, and then you can say whatever you want to say, but final question for me, and then it's over to you to kind of help us close out. Um, so as you know, I'm 53 and I am going through some changes and I'm curious, what are some of the things that you did for yourself um, that you would recommend other women, you know, that are going through transition, that are trying to live a long, purposeful, fabulous life, right? Any advice for any of us, Deb? Um, it could be something maybe that you didn't do, <laughs> that you should have done, right? When you look yeah. back, um, it could be something that is kind of a core practice that you do every day that you just assume everybody else does out there. But what advice or tips do you have for someone like me at this kind of stage in transition? Well, it can feel selfish, but you have to take care of yourself first. Otherwise, you won't have the energy to do what mm -hmm. you're called to. Be playful. Um, don't be afraid um, to be creative and chart your own path. If you have hobbies um, or passions that you don't think are related to what you need to do to earn a living, then you're not thinking clearly. Like I like directing huh. plays. Uh, you can in this work, it can be like directing a play every day. Um, and, and you can use that skill set and that passion uh, to create circumstances in the people around you. 
That's a great I think, one. I think also um, stay away from the people who are a drag. You know, you're not obligated to try to help and fix everybody. Uh-huh. And this is probably the most important one for me personally. Pay attention to your circadian rhythm. Like I am done in terms of anything helpful after about four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> okay. If you want me to, to get up at five o'clock in the morning and help you with something. I'm totally up for that. But sure. I used right. to p- try to push through and then I would just uh-huh. create more work for myself because anything I did in the evening, I had to redo the next morning. My brain no okay. longer was firing on all cylinders. And this had nothing to do with the aging process. Um, We're all wired differently. So really pay attention to that because you can um, then use the evening to do things that recharge your battery. Or I have a friend who works in the middle of the night. I mean, her best hours are 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. I always get messages from her then. I cannot imagine, but hey, it works for her. So I it works for the key ones. Um, and, you know, continue to have these conversations with people who give you energy and are um, Im- impressed with what you're doing and want to see you succeed. You don't Aww. need a therapist if you surround yourself with um, people that you could talk to like we're talking today. I was uh, talking to someone yesterday and we were talking about, she was talking about the the power of community, you know, and that sometimes you focus so much on self, like like she was saying, like you were saying, self-care is important. You know, she does yoga every day and has her whole life and stuff, but she was saying, um, you know, find your community, find your people that like to do what you like to do. And um, that's so obvious, Deb, but it's something I hadn't thought about in a while. And then hearing you talk right now about um, finding, you know, a different outlet for some of the things that I'm good at directing plays i don't know i might have to hit you up and first of all come see a play that you're doing and then secondly um unpack you know how it is i can be a part of that well deb this has been so so lovely um a lot of things in there i did not know and um i don't know why i would know all of them but there was a lot in there and there's a lot more connections there between us than i even knew were, were present before so i'm just so grateful for you and i'm so excited about this next phase of yours and we're going to check in and see how it's going and see if you're kind of um, still enjoying, enjoying dorm life, yes. you know? <laughs> well, I wish you the best uh, in this next, next chapter and I'm happy um, and honored to be a part of your community. Thank you, Deb Daggett. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye.